This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, August 26, 2010. I'm Caleb Brown. Hiring at Chrysler and GM is up, and GM is about to announce a massive IPO. So did the auto bailout work after all? Only if you refuse to count up the costs, says Dan Eikenson, Associate Director of the Cato Institute's Center for Trade Policy Studies. There's a little bit more to that story than uh, than calling it a success. A few months ago, Stephen Ratner, who was the auto czar, wrote an article in the Washington Post saying, you know, isn't it time we call the auto bailout a success? Well, this is this notion of success is predicated on two quarters of profits. Okay, so-so profits, uh, and not as good as some of the other automakers in the United States. Um, and GM has got this IPO uh, on the table. It's going to happen perhaps next month. That's great. Let's get the government out of the auto industry as, as quickly as possible. But to call it a success is to ignore all of the costs. It's a classic uh, broken window fallacy. The costs uh, imposed on bondholders who had their property stolen from them. Uh, the costs to the market process. I mean, Ford and Honda and Toyota and all these other American producers, and I, I call Honda and Toyota American producers because they produce in America. Um, they were denied the spoils of competition. Uh, we also had the rule of law was run roughshod over. Uh, we had, starting with President Bush, diversion of TARP funds, which were devoted for a financial bailout a, that we didn't support either, but uh, money was diverted. And President Obama piled on that. Uh, so I think we need to consider all of these costs uh, before we can you know, consider the bailout as being a success. And on top of that, uh, GM has a long way to go. Um, they're, they're, they're basing their hopes on sales of the Chevy Volt, which sells for $41,000, you know, this high fuel efficiency vehicle, at a time when, when fuel prices are pretty low. Uh, and at a time when there are question marks about where the U.S. economy is going and auto sales are very cyclical, and we'll see how that all plays out. Detail, when you're talking about costs, detail these bondholders having their property stolen. Some of these people were state workers in Indiana. Yeah. Uh, we had here at Cato Richard Murdoch, the treasurer of the state of uh, Indiana, come and give a very compelling story about what went on. Uh, the Obama administration really inserted itself into the bankruptcy process uh, for GM and Chrysler, uh, and in Chrysler's case, forced uh, the bondholders to take pennies on the dollars, on, on their investment dollars. Many of those bondholders were banks that were bailed out under the TARP, so they were able to twist their arms pretty, pretty easily. But there were smaller players, like the Indiana Teachers Fund, its Firefighters Fund, these pension funds, uh, which lost a lot of money. Uh, as a result of having to go along with uh, with with uh, uh, the, the pressure from the Obama administration, in the absence of this auto bailout, we can speculate a little bit about what would have happened to GM and Chrysler had the government not swooped in. And uh, there were claims at the time there are three million jobs that are ripple effect that would be affected by the ripple effect of losing GM and, Chry and Chrysler that would have been sold off in parts to to other companies. Well, don't auto manufacturers sell off brands themselves all the time? Sure. It was quite possible to go that route. But if you remember, that was the day after the presidential election, the day after President Obama was elected. Uh, the Center for Automotive Research in Detroit produced a report saying that about 3 million U.S. jobs were at stake unless 
the government bailed out the big three. And their argument was predicated on the idea that if, uh, if GM went under, that that would put enormous strain on the auto supply chain, which would put strain on Chrysler, which would put more strain on the auto supply, and then Ford would go under, and then even the foreign nameplate producers would go under. So it was this fantastical worst-case scenario. Uh, in all likelihood, uh, we could have one of the companies might have gone under. There may have been tens of thousands of jobs lost, as there were anyway. Uh, but GM's assets could have been sold off to uh, the, the more deserving companies, the companies that have made the products that Americans have wanted to buy. You know, Ford was denied the spoils of this competition, as was Honda and these other companies. And, and I think that that's a problem because as a result, GM hangs around. Uh, they, they've been given an advantage even by having all this debt wiped off their books. Uh, so as a result, you know, their cash flow is pretty good. So it gives you this idea that, hey, here's a company worth investing in. Oh, well, how did they get there? They got, they got there after the government came in and wiped their debts clean. Uh, but the, there's no real indication that the same culture that created this problem doesn't still exist. It's the same UAW. Uh, they're not uh, coming to us uh, thanking us for saving jobs. Uh, and, and GM is not necessarily making... GM's big problem is that it's going to be forced to sell a lot of high-mileage vehicles to comport with 35.5-mile-per-gallon uh, fuel efficiency standards, which are coming down the pike in a couple of years. GM has never been successful in that end of the market. They've been successful selling muscle cars and, and SUVs and luxury cars. But now they're going to be forced to compete in Honda space, in Toyota space, and in Ford space, selling high-mileage vehicles in order to get an average fleet efficiency of 35.5 miles per gallon. We saw last year in the Cash for Clunkers program that GM doesn't have many offerings in that area that consumers want. No GM offerings finished in the top 10. So that's what GM has to look forward to going forward. And I think investors, savvy investors, recognize that GM's prospects are compromised by that reality. And as a result, it might be very difficult to raise the money that the government is uh, hoping to raise to get below 50%. You know, the, 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 the GM wants to, to shed itself, rid itself of the moniker government motors. And it intends to do that by getting government ownership down to about 49% for now. But if they're going to completely privatize and make the taxpayers whole, they're going to have to sell the rest of those shares, which means... Anybody who owns stock knows that there's going to be a big supply coming on the market down the road, which is going to suppress the value of that stock. So I think they have a real uphill battle. That's not to say that I don't want the government to get out of GM. I'd like them to get out of GM, uh, but there's no way we call this a success. Dan Eikenson is Associate Director of the Cato Institute's Center for Trade Policy Studies. You can read more of his work at Cato.org.